Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very pleased to have Simon Morrison on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, The People's Artists, Prokofiev's Soviet Years. Uh, you've probably heard Prokofiev's music. Peter and the Wolf is the um, most famous composition probably to most Americans, um, and you probably didn't know that he had a fascinating life. Part of it uh, he spent in Russia, and then he traveled to the West, and then he returned to the Soviet Union in the unfortunate year of 1935, uh, where he lived to the end of his life. Um, very little was actually known about Prokofiev's Soviet years before um, the intrepid Simon uh, entered the Russian archives and dug up a lot of new information about him. And I have to tell you that that information sheds uh, a lot of new light on um, Prokofiev's work in the Soviet Union, his musical productions there. Uh, it's a tale that you um, have, in a sense, heard before, that of an artist uh, struggling with the uh, communist powers that were uh, to get uh, his uh, artistic work done. And uh, Prokofiev had some triumphs and some tragedies. But what's most interesting about the book is that uh, his personality really comes out as uh, does uh, the relationship between that personality and the Soviet authorities and his music. Uh, it's a terrific book. I highly recommend that you read it, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Simon. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. Things are very nice here in Iowa. How are things in New Jersey? Um, very cold suddenly today. Um, the weather has changed a lot, and uh, it's been sort of blustery, and right now it's around zero. Yeah, well, that's, um, yeah that's a good, that's good weather to study in. That's what I exactly. That's why I don't live in California. I, I did live in California. I never got anything done there. I was ter- it was terrible. That's what they say. That's what they say. If you take a teaching job there, the first year, forget it. I never. I never got. I had to leave. I had to leave the state really to get my dissertation done. I just out of there, man. Um, well, that's why Russia's a good place to work. Exactly. You get a lot done. Yeah. So anyway, I should tell our listeners that we have uh, Simon Morrison on the show today, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book. The People's Artist, uh, Prokofiev's Soviet Years. It's uh, just come out, so we're obviously very pleased to have him. And um, let me begin by asking you, Simon, to say a few words uh, about yourself, uh, where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in music and music history, that sort of thing. Sure. Um, I was actually born in the U.K., and uh, um, but at a very young age, around five, my, my parents immigrated to Canada for work, uh, to Western Canada. And uh, my father, who was a sort of hospital administrator, and my mother was a nurse, we, they settled outside of Winnipeg, mm-hmm. um, which is very cold indeed, yeah. and, uh, in this town called Selkirk, which is notorious as probably <laughs> considered one of the most disreputable towns in, in the Western Hemisphere. Um, but uh, I grew up there, and um, I uh, you know, went through high school and uh, became interested in just in playing in the band in in studying music, um, I was actually a tuba player. And, really? Uh, the percussion work, piano, tuba. And I wanted to study music, and I applied to what I regard at the time as the best music school 
um, in the country and got in uh, based on this tuba audition, uh, which was the University of Toronto. And mm-hmm. I studied there um, and graduated in 1987. And it was during that period where I actually had um, inclination to go into performance, but recognizing that uh, the audition circuit for tuba players and the possibility of getting yeah. a job is fairly remote. I, right. I uh, became interested in the da- academic side first, education, and then I went into history, and I was bitten by that bug. And uh, after I graduated, I worked. Um, I thought I should work for a while, um, get some income, sort of be in an office, have a regular job. So I worked for a year and a half in an arts granting organization in mm-hmm. Toronto, and after that, went out to McGill, um, and um, Continued studying music history, and I took as a, during the end towards the end of my undergraduate years, I, I took one course um, as a sort of language requirement in Russian, and I really loved it, but mm-hmm. sort of forgot about it. But when I went to McGill, I started picked it up again, and then I did something which was sort of strange. I applied for a grant to actually visit Russia as part of a group and just do a little immersion at the sort of beginning level of the language, and I went there for just a couple of weeks initially and then got another grant and actually spent a long time there and sort of fully immersed. Mm-hmm. And this was the beginning of the Yeltsin period, so mm-hmm. it was fairly desperate and very chaotic. But I I basically lived in Moscow for a year and, um, you know, was immersing in the language, um, having a lot of crazy experiences, traveling around places mm-hmm. I shouldn't go. And, mm-hmm. and I sat in on some of the courses of the conservatory and so forth. From there, I went to Princeton University, I applied while I was in Moscow to graduate mm-hmm. school, and I did my doctorate here at Princeton. Mm-hmm. Let me see. Mm-hmm. And um, how, so, uh, do you still play the tuba? No, no, oh, I play the piano. Oh, <laughs> I have a piano at home, but no tuba. No. The tuba, I think, was abandoned at McGill. It was somewhere in the basement. That's too bad. So I, I, it's not in the. If it, you know, it'd be more sort of you know a better anecdote if it were somehow stored in the, the, the basement of the Paris Opera, but yeah. no, it's somewhere in the bowels of the well, the, tu- the tuba is the king of instruments. I mean, there's, you know, I mean, it's a tuba. It's it's a really, you know, a thing, you know. Yeah, and I had I had a wild one. I mean, yeah. in order to adjust the tuning, I had some welding done. By the time I was done with it, it was a dented bizarre apparatus, which sounded pretty good. I really hope that this spawns a whole new generation of tuba players. I, uh, <laughs> I, re- I honestly do. So, um, let's, um, um, move on to this. Was was Prokofiev the the subject of your dissertation then? Uh, no, my uh, dissertation was on um, the symbolist movement uh, mm-hmm. in Russia. So it was on the turn of the century, mm-hmm. into the 20th century. And it was about a group of operas and uh, their relationship with uh, you know mysticism and uh, trends in literature that had to deal with the otherworldly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was an aesthetics uh, study. One of the chapters concerned uh, Prokofiev uh, is. Uh, outlandish opera about the supernatural called The Fiery Angel, which has a symbolist novel as its source, mm-hmm. but it's a parodic treatment of the subject matter. Mm-hmm. So that was just one small chapter on it, and the rest of it had to deal with Ritsky Korsakov, primarily Scriabin, mm-hmm. and there was also an early chapter on uh, Tchaikovsky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was in, I think it was when I was in, an undergraduate, which is about the same time you were, and uh, I remember that one of Scriabin's progeny used to make uh, Ads for scotch, 
Do you remember these? <laughs> Honestly, because I had a Russian professor. He's like, look, this is what's happened to the Scriabin family. They make ads for scotch. <laughs> well, undoubtedly. <laughs> I said, great. You know, however you make ends meet. Um, so in any event, how, how, did, you, how did you decide to write uh, th- this particular um, biography of, of Prokofiev's Soviet years? Somewhat by chance. Uh, I, for about 15 years now, I've been going to Moscow and, and trolling around in the various federal archives. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I have a great love for Prokofiev's music from the start. I always had this from uh-huh. just growing up, my father listening to it. And um, I, just in my early dissertation work, when I was doing this chapter on this one opera and a couple of articles, and then eventually a, a performance project I did here at Princeton University, which was a revival of a Prokofiev ballet, mm-hmm. I sort of got to know the Prokofiev holdings uh, in Moscow and, and was fascinated by the fact that half of them were closed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, half of them are closed in one of the biggest archives in Moscow, and a good portion of the holding is closed in another smaller museum archive. And um, through a fairly protracted um, period of negotiation, but also just befriending and uh, working with the Prokofiev estate on performance-related projects, including this ballet staging and then a play staging with some of his incidental music, um, I gradually got uh, access to some of the musical materials that were sealed. Mm -hmm. And from that, um, working with the family as well as with the head of the archive in question, the Mm -hmm. director of the archive in question, which is Russian State Archive of Literature and Art, Mm -hmm. I eventually got access to um, most of the sealed side of the archive, the personal materials in that, as well as Mm -hmm. the political materials. Mm -hmm. So from that, once that archive opened up to me, um, I, I... realized immediately that I needed to kind of abandon the project I was working on, which was a study on ballet um, mm-hmm. in the 20s, and actually take this on, because it was just such a, an amazing opportunity. Mm-hmm. And from that, after over the course of five years, I, I, I put together this book. That's funny, because that's what I tell all my students. I say, you, you, you have plan X. Go into yeah. an archive, you will come out with plan Y. <laughs> well, that's, that's the wonderful thing about archives. I mean, the, irrespective of their reputation to the outside world, they're living places yeah. full of you know, wonderful spirits. Yeah, no, it's, it's, you know, I was, the one thing I'll say about this archive, which was truly for me one of these beguiling attractions, was if you go in there and you, you know, everything is cataloged in these binders, mm-hmm. and you can so see what's, what, what belongs to Prokofiev. So there's just four big binders, and you go through them, and uh, they say available, not available. You know, to be given out, mm-hmm. not to be given out. And so you can just go down the list and see what's open and what's closed. So most mm-hmm. of the personal letters are closed. Um, but the interesting thing is there are four of these catalogs, and they are numbered as follows: one, two, three, and five. <laughs> so the question arises: like, so uh, yeah. you know, what's catalog number four, yeah, and right. where is it? Yeah. <laughs> you know? right. And that's the amazing one. That's the one that. Um, is completely off limits. It's invisible mm-hmm. because it's basically comprised of materials that aren't even reproduced. Mm-hmm. The archive only has single copies of them. They're not properly cataloged, and they are completely taboo, completely off limits to researchers. Did you get a, uh, Did you get a chance to look at those? Yes, for <laughs> <laughs> a while. <laughs> but what I did was I sort of got a I got from the archive this structure of it, and then I requested specific things. Uh-huh. A lot of the material in there had to do with Prokofiev's early life, you know, his letters to his mother, old yeah. girlfriends, and so on, so it wasn't of interest to me for this project. Uh-huh. There were certain things to do with Romeo and Juliet, um, which 
the original version with a happy ending, which is what I remember yeah, right. Mark yeah, Morris yeah, Dad's yeah, group. Yeah, right. Some documents about that that uh-huh. were in that I sort of yeah. retrieved. Yeah, yeah, that's a terrific story. Yeah, no, there's really a terrific But it's the typical of the sort of Russia, you know, all secrets are sort yeah. of out there or known, yeah. you know. No, that's, <laughs> that's quite true, quite true. Uh, so let's um, just launch into Prokofiev's life. Um, now, your book itself, I should tell the readers, is, is really primarily about uh, Prokofiev's Soviet years, and he goes back in, what is it, 35, is that right? 35 almost permanently, and then 36 the door closed. But if you could just give us a kind of brief summation of his life to that point, that would be great. Sure. He um, was uh, born in Ukraine in a small town, a hamlet called Sanslovka. Um, his father was um, looked after land, looked after an estate. His mother was um, educated him in piano. Uh, he went to the, as a child prodigy, he had Mozartian gifts. He uh, went to the St. Petersburg Conservatory very early on, series of piano teachers, worked with Rimsky-Korsakov, was a bit of an enfant terrible within the conservatory system, um, creating both traditional works but also some more outlandish experimental ones. Then, um, upon graduation, he aligned himself with Diaghilev and the Ballet Russe organization, mm-hmm. which was in Paris, and um, he was mentored and also established a rivalry with Stravinsky composed to mixed results a series of ballets for that organization. Um, traveled from there, um, seeking basically new opportunities. He traveled from there um, to the United States. Um, his actual first trip outside of Russia was, major trip was to the United States. So he, mm-hmm. unlike other Russian emigres, actually ended up going east. He went mm-hmm. through Japan and ended up mm-hmm. in California, uh, whereas the rest of them sort of flooded out to Germany mm-hmm. and France and England. Mm-hmm. So he went back and forth um, in mid-career, um, sort of early mid-career, uh, between Western Europe and America. In Chicago, he composed his best-known opera, which is The Love of Three Oranges. Uh, he performed a lot of tempestuous recitals to, you know, audience incredulity. Mm-hmm. And um, he had um, a fairly rocky career. It was one with great successes occasionally, certainly great performing successes. Um Personally, it was probably more successful for him than professionally because he met his uh, first wife. Mm-hmm. Um, they had two children, and um, he basically established a, a household in Paris, but you know, fundamentally had to earn income by traveling, concertizing. Mm-hmm. He was always frustrated by the fact that he had to travel incessantly. It was exhausting for him as he sort of approached his middle years. And um, he began in the early 1930s to receive, uh, well, actually earlier than that, in the late 1920s, to receive very strong overtures from Soviet Russia. Mm-hmm. And uh, at this point in time, the uh, Stalinist regime was interested in bringing back Russian cultural celebrities who had left. Mm-hmm. And so there was a campaign that was sort of put out step-by-step, step, mobilized to bring him back mm-hmm. home. Mm-hmm. He was always interested in this because there was an element of homesickness within him. Mm-hmm. He also realized that whereas he had floundered to some degree in competition with Stravinsky, the United States was a little bit hostile to him early on, and he also found himself to some degree in competition there with Rachmaninoff. And so the idea of going back to Russia, which he considered to be his home country, mm-hmm. um, where he could conceivably be the big fish in the pond, mm-hmm. was attracted to him. Plus mm-hmm. the idea that what uh, he was offered by Soviet authorities was, you know, lucrative commissions, mm-hmm. um, steady work without having to concertize. Uh, best of all, he was guaranteed performances of big works, mm-hmm. operas and ballets. 
And bit by bit, uh, this this set of lures became more and more attractive to him. To a certain point, to the point at which he um, was basically receiving, um, by the early 30s, most of his income uh, out of Soviet Russia. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, uh, the authorities notified him to the extent that um, we cannot, we can no longer give you these commissions unless, in fact, you relocate. Mm-hmm. And the, the fatal move for him, you know. At the time, it seemed like a good idea because, for him, Paris was a home. It was not the home um, because he was fraternizing with the Russian emigrant community. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paris, at this point in time, was not particularly welcoming to foreigners. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, political developments in the early 30s in Western Europe were ominous, mm-hmm. as they were obviously in, in Russia. And um, he... He he took a, he made a gamble and um, he accepted the, these lures from the Soviets um, on the basis that they promised him that you know all we're asking you to do is, is shift your sphere of operations mm-hmm. to move from Paris to Moscow where the work is but mm-hmm. still you'll be Mister International you'll be Mister mm-hmm. Cosmopolitan mm-hmm. Um, uh, but you're just going to where it's more convenient for you essentially he thought about it he wavered um, but his wife uh, Lena Prokofiev uh, who's not Russian um, she actually up in the New York area, um, she sort of convinced him that this would be a good thing to do. It would be essentially a good career move. And um, the nudge, the final nudge, uh, was one that was fateful indeed. Uh, in early 1936, um, uh, Prokofiev was back in Paris, having spent this wonderful summer in outside of Moscow composing Romeo and Juliet. Um, they were packing to make the final move, and this um, political storm, musical political storm, erupted in Moscow because Shostakovich was denounced in the media for his opera leading. Mm-hmm. And rather than seeing this as an ominous signal, which it was, um, about the cra- about crackdown on any sort of experimentalism in music, uh, Prokofiev and his wife actually saw it as an opportunity that he could, in fact, arrive in Moscow and be immediately the number one composer. Mm-hmm. And in that miscalculation, it was the beginning of the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Let me um, actually uh, ask, uh, answer one question that I had uh, earlier uh, sure. about a period earlier in his life. And, and, and there's a note in the book. It's, it's just a couple of words, actually, but it kind of piqued my interest. And that is that when he left the, uh, the Soviet Union, he had the blessing of Lunacharsky. And I just wondered exactly how, how, did, how did he find himself getting the blessing of Lunacharsky? And did, what were his political sympathies at the time that he left? He was. He left revolutionary Russia. He left in 1919, and um, once the with the establishment of the Leninist regime, the Leninist government, um, Anatoly Lunacharsky um, was put in charge of enlightenment, cultural enlightenment. And uh, Prokofiev. What's interesting about his story is he, when he left, I mean, the common take on him is he left like Stravinsky left. He left the country. He was no longer going to be Russian. Mm-hmm. But in fact, he never planned on leaving for a long period of time. It just turned out that way. Mm-hmm. And what he basically got was, you know, permission from Lunacharsky, who was the Commissar of Enlightenment for sort of educational matters under Lenin, to leave the country on an extended tour. Mm-hmm. And this permission allowed him to get the necessary exit paperwork and the paperwork back into the country, and also allowed him to make contacts with foreigners who were in Russia at the time, including a fellow named Cyril McCormack, who became one of his first American sponsors. So this was the arrangement. Uh, Komandorovka uh, was <laughs> the word. It, right. it basically was, it means business trip. Yeah. But, you know, it was on the command of Lunacharsky that he was allowed to leave. Yeah. This is important because it meant there was official sanction for Prokofiev to leave, and the status he took with him abroad was that of a 
cultural diplomat, but uh, he was somehow a representative for Russia and then Soviet Russia. I, I should so know this. I, I should know this because I'm sure it's in the book. Did, did he, he maintained his um, Soviet citizenship throughout? No, he he left. Uh, he was you know at this period of time the Soviet Union did not exist. Uh-huh. Um, it was being formed, and he left um, basically without status, uh-huh. um, which is these papers. And he ended up in Angel Island. He took he went really? via Japan, Hawaii. He ended up in Angel Island outside uh-huh. of California, and was put in basically a detention facility. Uh-huh. And uh, he had to wait there for several days while they interrogated him, and then finally gave him. Um, a visa to enter the country. Uh-huh. So he, had, um, but, he, had, he was he was a stateless person then for. Yeah, and then after that, uh, through America, where he stayed, his first trip to America was protracted. It was about a year and a half, and then he went to Western Europe, reconnected with Yakovlev, um, and um, there for several years he existed on a Nansen passport, mm-hmm. um, and it was only with the um, establishment of the first Soviet embassy which was the one in Paris, mm-hmm. um, that he actually got Soviet citizenship. I see. And basically, as soon as that facility opened, he went down there and got a passport. Mm-hmm. And his first return trip back, um, which was eight years after he left, was in 1927, and after he went there on a Soviet passport. Mm-hmm. And at that point, things got dicey for him because he was maintaining um, an identity certificate uh, in Paris, a certificate mm-hmm. of identity, mm-hmm. uh, as well as Soviet, you know, documentation. Mm-hmm. So he had a Soviet passport. He was at this point regarded as a Soviet citizen, but living in France mm-hmm. on a temporary permit, which he had to renew every year. Mm-hmm. And because he concertized incessantly, he was moving all around Europe. He actually went to Northern Africa. He went, you know, just mm-hmm. everywhere. Um, border crosses became very, very difficult for him. And so um, there's a very thick file in, in Paris, um, you know, with the police about him. Mm-hmm. still exist, and you can actually just see like the kind of endless troubles he had crossing these various mm-hmm. borders get this you know strange status mm-hmm. you know, he was actually investigated a couple of times mm-hmm. no, I find it very interesting that he um held fast to the notion that he would return to whatever that place was called when he returned to <laughs> the Soviet Union in this case um because uh, other composers, as you say, did not um how, how was he seen in the emigrate community uh, before and after he returned? He was not. He didn't. wasn't part of the emigre community. And in fact, um, his primary circle of friends in Paris uh, from the twenties onward were basically representatives from the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. He was somebody whose social life was not in the various Parisian mm-hmm. salons, the kind of mm-hmm. places that Stravinsky, Picasso, and others yeah. frequented. Were basically these mm-hmm. soirees held at the embassies, and uh, he befriended from 1925 on these various artists, you know, experimental artists, products of the Cultural Revolution. Uh, who were interested in collaborating him on various projects. Thus, he teamed up with um, an Armenian artist named Yakulov on, on the ballet, which became the Steel Step Ballet. Um, he also contemplated working on um, a dramatic setting of novels by various revolutionary poets and writers, including people like Afanaganov, who was one of the, And so, and Gorky, and these people that were coming out of the Soviet sphere, they were in Paris, associated with the embassy, uh, correspondents for Pravda newspaper who were coming in and out, and um, he became part of that circle, and it was always this sort of pull back. And mm-hmm. it was always a, he was always being propagandized, told how on hand, wonderful and exciting it was, and how many opportunities there was. And to some degree, he was also fascinated by what had happened to this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, he left. Uh, he left Tsarist Russia. Basically, he was educated in Tsarist Russia. He left in a term of time of turmoil. He 
wondered when he was traveling to America whether or not it's like Russia would forgive him mm-hmm. for leaving at this time of crisis. And it was always this pull back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he never fully integrated into you know, Western life, as did Stravinsky, as did mm-hmm. the other. Mm-hmm. He learned French beautifully, he spoke mm-hmm. English well, he knew German. Mm-hmm. Polyglot, like his first wife yeah. was, he married a non-Russian. Mm-hmm. But he never abandoned his Russianness. And at one point in the early 30s, he actually, while he was trying to get going on his first cello concerto, he just complained that he just couldn't compose. You know, he just couldn't compose anymore. He was blocked. He just needed some inspiration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. Uh, he seems, uh, now, again, I don't really uh, quite know how to characterize his um, political attitudes, but he seems somewhere between strangely apolitical, uh, intentionally so, and just politically clueless. Um, how would you characterize it? Yeah, the general take on him is that he was politically naive. That's not true. He he actually thought a lot about politics. He was curious about them. He was fascinated by Marxism. Mm-hmm. He didn't believe that he read it. You know, he was fascinated by like he was fascinated by Schopenhauer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so and he he thought about various political systems, but basically he thought of himself as you know a tremendously a divinely gifted artist, mm-hmm. somehow above the fray. Mm-hmm. And um, when he made his moves, he thought in political terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, he decided that, well, he's going to go and ingratiate himself with the authorities, wherever the authorities are, in whatever way he needed to, mm-hmm. um, and basically do what he needed to in order to be you know, allowed to work in peace. Mm-hmm. But he also had a funny attitude about his music, which um, is a problem, I think, for historians and theorists alike, which is that he believed that, and this has to do with some of his spiritual sentiments, uh, he's an active Christian scientist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should talk about he that. He believed that you know, he believed that his music was, you know, this product of this divine gift. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, it was, it transcended kind of worldly concerns. Mm-hmm. And so, even though he wrote a lot of political pieces, heinously political pieces, you know, a birthday tribute to Stalin, mm-hmm. cantatas to the revolution, mm-hmm. he somehow believed that the music associated with the words he set, um, you know, was unrelated to them, transcended them. So even mm-hmm. though the music was busily representing these political ideas, mm-hmm. He thought, well, it didn't matter because the music was, you know, in a different sphere. The music could be detached from the words and attached to different words and so mm-hmm. forth. But so he had this kind of apolitical attitude to writing political works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, this paradoxical state of mind is, is something that's difficult for us to grasp, but it was very important to him. Yeah, I think I think you do a nice job in the book of of suggesting just that. And it is difficult for us to grasp because, you know, especially I think historians, um, not musicologists, historians such as yourself, are so deeply involved in explicit political discourse. It's kind of hard to understand that somebody could think, well, you know, my the, the product of, of my genius is for the ages and not for this or that passing political fancy. Um, but, uh, I mean... Yeah, like he sort of, he believed his music would be immortal, which turned out yeah, to be, yeah. that, you know, but... I think he fundamentally believed that well, Stalinism will disappear and my music will live on. Yeah, <laughs> he was right. And I think you know, I, I you know, I, I, I was never a um, a genius tuba player such as yourself, um, <laughs> but I, I did play in rock bands, and I can tell you that I met a lot of people who felt that about their music—that you know, this or that would come and go, but 
you know. And I, actually, I just gave this uh, lecture on romanticism, the genesis of romanticism, and I talked to the kids about Kurt Cobain, who I think thought the same thing. I mean, he thought he was writing music for the ages and thought that he was, you know, the kind of leader of his generation and all generations of young people, if you read his his journals and things like this. And, and he dies this kind of cliched romantic death, to be yeah, quite honest. Yeah. It's sort of sad, but that's what it is. I mean, he really had, you know, there's actually a line in... Um, I'm really showing my true colors now. There's a line in uh, David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders uh, from Mars where he says, Ziggy sucked up into his mind. And I always think that's a really nice metaphor for this kind of romantic vision of, of transcendentalism, of sort of transcendental products of writing for the ages, you know, and thinking that you are really above it all. But I, I do definitely get the impression from reading the book that Prokofiev was not, he, it's not that he was oblivious to these things, but he, he he really was above them. He he didn't think you know that uh, you know the slings and arrows of an outrageous whatever were going to get other people, but not him. Yeah, I agree with that, and I think that you know he treated people around him very badly at times. Um, mm-hmm. He did not treat his family well. Yeah. He abandoned them yeah. uh, in part for his work, and um, I think that he felt on one hand he had a tremendous sense of self. He was fairly fearless. Mm-hmm. Fairly, I mean, at a certain point he felt fear. You know, after 1940, but early mm-hmm. on he was just was not going to tolerate uh, being bullied by these Apparachiki mm-hmm. politicians. So he just didn't fear it at all. But he, was, I think, also recognized that his gift was truly preternatural. And to some degree, I line him up with the likes, I mean, in terms of his early innate childhood gift of Mozart, but mm-hmm. I sort of line him up with Tchaikovsky a little bit. I mean, Tchaikovsky was one of these artists who, you know, there's a lot of melancholic outpourings in his letters, and he's very emotional and down on himself often. And, it, you know, there's people read all sorts of nonsense into that about his you know, sexuality and mm-hmm. psychology. But I think fundamentally Tchaikovsky recognized that he had this amazing gift and that he was sort of placed on this planet to serve it, mm-hmm. and that he needed to work as hard as possible in honor of that gift. And mm-hmm. he was similar in that regard. And I think when he ended his life, you know, he, he ended his, his, his end was tragic. Mm-hmm. And uh, he left an enormous amount of work sort of on the table and mm-hmm. complete. He had a lot of ideas. And, you know, when he died, basically, he turned to his second life and just, he knew it was over. And he just basically said, you know, I, I could have composed so much more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the things that comes out about him is he's, he, is, he, is, um, he does have a strong work ethic. He produced yes. and produced and produced. Um, oh, he did. Yeah, I mean, he really, he does seem like, I was going to use the word workaholic, but that has negative connotations. And I, and I certainly do, I have met, you know, actually in my athletic career, I have met people who could do things that I had almost never seen anyone do. And all yeah. they wanted to do was do them. <laughs> you know, because that was what they were about. You know, I can do this incredible thing and almost nobody else can. If you'll just let me do it, you'll sure. be entertained. And I certainly can... Again, I'm not one of these people, but I certainly can understand wanting to serve that gift, uh, and 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 I can I can really um, understand the kind of tangible frustration at what what seem to be these kind of petty interferences um, that he must have suffered throughout his life. But on the other hand, you know, in a kind of broader perspective, as you say, he he and you're very gentle with him. I think he he does treat the people around him. Uh, I, I, badly is probably too strong, but in a very mixed way. In other words, he neglects them, and then when they get in trouble, he tries to save them in a half-hearted attempt. He seems tortured, particularly about his first wife. Maybe you could talk a little about that. Yeah, he suffered. He suffered guilt, and you know, just the, the one last thing before we turn to that about the, uh-huh. his political relationships and his his attitude towards his artists. I think that in one strange, bizarre, perhaps perverse way, he he liked the idea of taking these kind of terrible political commissions, 
because his mindset was, all right, you can give you sort of Pushkin like Pushkin in this regard. You can give me any sort of literary trash, mm-hmm. and I'll turn it into musical gold. Yeah, right. He kind of had that that attitude, like yeah. you can do, work this sort of magic. Right. Yeah, with regard to his um, separation from his first wife and his connection to second, this is like the rawest and most painful period um, in his existence, certainly in his first wife's existence, and for the family, the surviving family members, it's still extremely painful. Um, the copy of the marriage. He married his first wife in 1924 after a long relationship. Um, it seems he married her because she got pregnant. Um, they had two children, two boys, and um, by the time they re- relocated from Paris to Moscow, one of them was in his teens, the other was getting there. Um, the relationship deteriorated. It was deteriorated before they had relocated. One wonders if part of this relocation was you know, one of these kind of reflexive moves to kind of re-energize mm-hmm. the relationship through a change in surroundings. We don't know. We know that there were a lot of fights when they traveled, tremendous fights. The pressure of being in Stalinist Moscow is one that we cannot mm-hmm. imagine. Um, we know that people, even under Stalin, lived normal lives to some degree. They went on picnics. They had mm-hmm. divorces. And Prokofiev um, uh, found himself attracted to a lot of other women. Mm-hmm. And uh, the relationship, the marriage deteriorated, and there are these startling anecdotes and interviews and letters in which uh, Lena acknowledges the fact that she was terrified. Um, and that in 1937, when they're living in this apartment in Moscow, which is you know a luxurious apartment by Moscow standards, people around them were being arrested mm-hmm. uh, during the Stalinist purges. Prominent people were being arrested. They heard this happening at night. And uh, she said, you promised me to him you know, that if we didn't like it here, we could go back to Paris. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, what I promised then, I can't do now mm-hmm. anymore. And why he said that, we don't know the answer to that, but he really couldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing that he was able to do was get them one last trip abroad. And uh, the condition was that, yeah, the two of them could go abroad, tour, go to Europe, go to America, but the children had to stay mm-hmm. in school mm-hmm. as kind of hostages. Yeah. Well, this is what happened. He went on this final tour, and when he came back, that was it. The door closed permanently, no more travel abroad. And at this point, his in the summer, he went to this resort in the Caucasus with his wife, and um, he uh, was attracted to a young, ambitious kind of graduate student in a translation program named Mira Mendelssohn, uh, a kid with a you know very well-connected family, mm-hmm. speaking. And uh, she put her eyes on him, and... Um, Courted him and he responded. She wooed him with the idea of various collaborative projects, uh, her translations, doing an opera together. And this romance developed in a way that um, became known to Lena, which she tried to put a stop to. Um, and it became one of these traditional, you know, standard sort of stories. And mm-hmm. at a certain point, there was some flare up in which one of two things happened. Either there was a tremendous argument with Lena that he just left for good, or else Mira threatened him with, you know, quasi-romantic way, mm-hmm. um, and uh, basically he, he abandoned his, his wife and children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he had, what is strange for him is this, this Prokofiev was, you know, basically homeless for many years of his life, just traveling. Mm-hmm. Finally, he gets a home in Moscow, and then two years after that, he becomes homeless mm-hmm. again, basically living in various places mm-hmm. with his second, part, eventual second wife. It took a while for him to get married. He was staying with her parents, staying at the Dachats out of Moscow, staying with friends. And um, 
the household, the, his second household with his second wife was only established when the Second World War started. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, the two of them were evacuated together. Mm-hmm. And he, at this point, obviously felt tremendous guilt about his children, about his first wife, and he vowed to support them in, in with all means possible. And he did that. He fulfilled that vow. He, he sent them money regularly. He mm-hmm. tried to look after their housing. He got mm-hmm. the care when mm-hmm. he needed to. But um, Nina, the first wife, she was just left with nothing. Um, she she ended up working as a translator, um, which is a fascinating in some way because she worked, worked for a translator of military intelligence during the war. Mm-hmm. Um, so she worked for the Soviet Information Bureau, and uh, but she you know sank into extreme depression. She and the children all got very ill, uh, and then afterwards, um, uh, as a culmination of a long process, she she petitioned and petitioned and petitioned um, for an exit visa to get out of the that was possible, but she continued to fraternize in places where she should not have been fraternizing. She mm-hmm. visited the American Embassy, the British, and uh, she was picked up. She was arrested mm-hmm. and charged with various counts of, well, attempts to flee and treason, espionage, and uh, was sentenced to um, 20 years in the penal camp system in the Gulag. Um, this happened in 1948, which was a period in which Prokofiev himself was under suspicion and was castigated for his musical activities, mm-hmm. and um, the children broke the news to him, mm-hmm. to him and his eventual second wife. Mm-hmm. And um, I think he just, at that point, I think he just collapsed. And just, I mean, mm-hmm. I know that he said to them, you know, what have I done? Mm-hmm. Because she was defenseless. Mm-hmm. But she, you know, Lena had an extraordinary life. She stayed in the camps for eight years. He died during her time in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, she heard the news on the radio. Yeah, that's a fascinating story. Why don't you tell that really quickly? Well, she was she was sentenced to uh, three or four camps. Some of them were held foreigners. And um, in 1953, Prokofiev died on the same day as Stalin, within the same evening hour as Stalin, we, we now believe. But the question isn't when he died. It's exactly when Stalin died. It's not exactly clear. <laughs> yeah. No one will ever tell us that. But um, the, the reports of his demise delayed owing to the, you know, the orgy of weeping, mm-hmm. the hysteria surrounding Stalin. But uh, the news of Prokofiev's death was actually broadcast on radio um, from Argentina, of all things, where some of his music was being performed, and Lena heard it in the camp. And uh, according to one of her friends in the camp who actually provided me an interview, she just, she just silently began to weep and, and walked away. Um, she was released from the camps in '56 um, under Khrushchev during the period of destalinization of that society. Um, she was looked after by the head of the Union of Soviet Composers, who got her a one-room apartment. Um, she stayed in Moscow until 1974. Um, both of her children were there, but her youngest son, Oleg, defected, having married a foreigner mm-hmm. uh, who was in Moscow. And then she petitioned to leave as well and um, got an exit visa to go to a festival. And she herself defected. And she lived um, in Paris primarily, but visited her her younger son, who ended up in London, mm-hmm. um, and um, she died in 1989, shortly after doing a final recording of Peter and the Wolf at Lincoln Center. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So an amazing life, mm-hmm. uh, more amazing than his, and it's something that, in terms of its details, it's something I don't think any novelist would dare contrive, um, but very strong person, obviously. Yeah, it really, it really is a remarkable life. I, I, I have to, you know, again, she... It's funny because Prokofiev served his own genius. In a sense, she served his genius too, um, not willingly. <laughs> well, she, that's, she was a she was a 
you know, a mid-level singer, and I say that yeah. generous. She yeah. probably wasn't wasn't a strong voice, but so she, you know, she became involved with a famous musician, you know, one of the famous musicians in the world, and went along with it. Yeah. And she was not the gatekeeper, the sort of secretarial support that his second wife became. Mm-hmm. But she was, you know, an individual. She was had her own artistic ambitions, but she, mm-hmm. you know, teamed up with him. They did a lot of recitals together. Um, but uh, she, you know, wanted her own life. She was somewhat of a society person. Mm-hmm. And liked the glamour of Paris. Paris mm-hmm. spoiled her greatly, and uh, you know that fractured, uh, eventually fractured. Her. It's a it's a, it's a horrible analogy, but I'll confess that my um, popular culture addled mind immediately went to it when I read about Mira. Was her name right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that uh, she was much more Yoko like <laughs> than than Lena was. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know the the we. <laughs> The funny thing about her is there was always this sense in the, the Cold War legacy that his second wife was somehow, you know, it was a setup. It was a political setup. Yeah. But she was, a, you know, there was all rumors that she was you know, the daughter of the niece of Stalin. Uh-huh. It was one of the popular ones. Um, her father was a statistician, economist. Mm-hmm. Uh, her mother helped build the subway in Moscow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she's, you know... Uh, but, you know, she was a good kind of, you know, yeah. communist young person, but her parents actually wanted her to stay out of the political life and yeah. put her into literary school. Yeah. So, uh, but she was, what, 24 years younger. Yeah, exactly. Talk no. about her. No, I mean, I think she... It was she, a midlife crisis. Yeah, no, she, she I mean, uh, you know, uh, yeah, reading reading the account in your book, I mean, she comes off as a, as a very genuine, sort of artistically inspired person in love with Prokofiev deeply and, you know, dedicated to him. And, you know, she's she really is a, a kind of, you know, true believer in his genius and she wants to help him and he allows her to, to help him. And so, I mean, it does seem like a kind of a love match. I mean, that, that's what it looks like. Yeah, it was, a, it was an ideal companionship. I mean, by the time... Prokofiev suffered from extreme high blood pressure. By the time they uh, were together, I think he was in poor health, and I think she tended to him on that front as well. And, you know, one of the... It it couldn't have been great after Lena was released from prison Mm -hmm. uh, because the two women were in Moscow together. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they, you know, (laughs) fraternized. But, you know, during this period, after Lena was released, she, you know, with extreme energy, went to get her reputation back, including Mm -hmm. her rights to Prokofiev's... Right. Heritage and her status as his legal wife, which was actually rescinded. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, it could not have been great between the two. The Mira, um, the reports on her it makes most people actually think she was actually a wonderful person. Um, uh, a distinguished colleague of mine, Malcolm Brown, is now retired. Mm-hmm. Uh, works in Russian music at Indiana University. He is the only person I know um, from the West who actually met Mira. Oh, really? There in the sixties. Mm-hmm. And um, he said he said he could understand the appeal. I mean, he knew both. He met both of them. And, mm-hmm. uh, did a lot of interviews with them. And said Mary had one interview with her. She was extremely nervous. Mm-hmm. This is not a kind of conduct she wanted to have. Whereas Lena was very open. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, he had a very good impression of her. Yeah. She ended up, you know, she lived with her father until he died, and and um, and um, she died alone. Uh, they found mm-hmm. her literally with, you know, she, she had collapsed while on the phone. Mm-hmm. So they found her dead with the phone. That's terrible. It's horrible. So uh, why don't we spend a few minutes, this is really my weak point, I have to say, um, uh, to talking about uh, Prokofiev's music after he came back in 1935. And, and I wanted to start with kind of a general question, because I should, I should tell uh, those people that are very interested in Prokofiev's music and, and music in, in general that uh, you... you you, um, that many of the pages of the book are given over to descriptions of Prokofiev's 
uh, compositions themselves and attempts to characterize them kind of vis-a-vis one another and vis-a-vis the broader musical context. Um, it strikes me that this kind of thing is extraordinarily difficult. How, how did you approach it? Um, I Well, I approached it um, basically, you know, I was writing a biography, but I felt I needed to acknowledge the craft mm-hmm. uh, that this person had dedicated himself to, mm-hmm. uh, trained in, in music theory and I've done a lot of manuscript work over the years, including you know restoring some of his compositions, mm-hmm. putting them back together after they've been sort of, uh, you know scattered amongst different archives. Mm-hmm. So what I basically um, discovered in writing this book is actually we don't actually know the entire Prokofiev work list, and so one of my duties was actually to actually just list, discuss all of the works he composed mm-hmm. uh, in order and. Um, you know, why some of them were banned and why some of them never got performed, why some of them were reworked and retitled mm-hmm. and, and mashed up in different ways. And so primarily my duty was just actually creating a chronology of his life. Mm-hmm. This is somebody whose work was his life, um, was to basically provide the chronologies of all of these big compositions, mm-hmm. as well as some of the smaller ones. And um, I found that the stories of some of these compositions, like Romeo and Juliet, uh, like Cinderella, uh, like The Last Symphony, uh, were fascinating in their own right because they were so politically fraught. Mm-hmm. Um, they were so interfered with by various levels of the Soviet bureaucracy that by actually going through each of these compositions and talking about their genesis, one really got a sense of how Soviet music worked, mm-hmm. who paid for these things, uh, how they were controlled, uh, who censored them, who didn't, um, who promoted them, and the interactions between various musicians. I mean, there were still a lot of questions that you know I've yet to answer about mm-hmm. the context and commissions, but I, I worked hard to get a lot of those answers. And so I, I, I became fascinated just by just the chronologies of his works and then um, his compositional process, which I found really quite remarkable because he, despite the fact that he collaborated incessantly, despite the fact that he always seemed to need somebody to tell him what to do, he needed a kind of you know, super ego filmmaker or director or even politician to sort of guide his compositional energies. He would just take a bunch, he would just take up, you know, he would just work in isolation. So he mm-hmm. would read the source play that he was writing music to and, and then sit down and within a day or two write it up. Mm-hmm. The idea that Peter and the Wolf, um, you know, his most famous work, um, became famous in his own time was, was something that he just whipped up and yeah, I found that inc- in minutes. It's, I found it incredible. Just truly amazing. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, on a whim, and, and, you know, that kind of, I just found just to describe that kind of gift of fascinating for me. Yeah, yeah. No, I imagine. But the fact that he did all of that while traveling, living out of suitcases, yeah. under enormous pressure, unwell, it just seemed unbelievable. Yeah, no, I agree. Especially the last part, because he he does travel all the time. And and I got to tell you that, like, just speaking personally, and, and I, that there are certain times and places where I can work, and they are very few. <laughs> I, if you sent me in a hotel room someplace in Cleveland, I, I could do no productive work, none, and uh, I'd just be too. Yeah, I'd just go it. to the Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, right. I would. I probably would too. And there, I wouldn't do anything, but I'd get to look at things. Um, but yeah, I, I just found it absolutely astounding the, the degree to which he could um, he could apparently concentrate and be and productive. He work, and, if, and he would work with no materials. I mean, half of his career was begging for manuscript paper. Amazing. Um, yeah. So you look at. You know, this, you know, Cinderella is a major 20th century composition. You know, yeah. it's a celebrated ballet. You look at the state of that manuscript, and it's unbelievable. Yeah. It's like different color, different size paper, all yeah. torn up. It's just yeah. written on scraps. It's, yeah. It's quite amazing. That yeah. No. The, fact I, that the survival of this material is also testament to him because he, you know, he was 
was very good at the end of his life when he sensed it. Yeah. Putting packaging up his scores and putting right. it. In. But let's let's talk a little bit about you know one of the fascinating things that I, that I found, I found in your book is you know we have this kind of um, you know and I, I study Russian Soviet history and I I also have this kind of cliched stereotype of a kind of top down command type administrative system where you know somebody at the very top says X and it it it, it goes down through a series of dispatches and everybody toes the party line but I think you do a nice job of of describing how it, none of that was really necessary that a signal could be sent from the top and then everybody would sense immediately what it meant. And for example, commissions would be withdrawn, or um, performances would 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 be um, would be canceled. This kind of thing, and and it really there was a lot of kind of unspoken uh, um, activity going on in the way in which Soviet music worked. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, it has to do. I think it stems just in terms of how Stalin operated. I mean, there's not. We don't have access to the presidential archive, of course, but what we there's a lot of duplication in the archive system. You get a sense of how Stalin operated by looking at other uh-huh. archives. But, I mean, most of it was oral resolutions. Yeah. Nothing, very little was written down. So in terms of the big liquidations, the biggest monstrous crimes, there's probably no document with his yeah. hand on it, his signature on mm-hmm. it. So these oral resolutions and these things that are just not written down were the ways in which important decisions were disseminated. But there were certain sort of sly ways in which big signals could be sent. So when Prokofiev, like Shostakovich, and five others got into political hot water um, in 1948, mostly because they were you know, getting a lot of financial perks, um, you know, the Central Committee sort of published a list of works that couldn't be performed by Shostakovich or Prokofiev. Mm-hmm. And the list is completely random and chaotic. It's mm-hmm. like it doesn't make any sense. You look at well, some of them said, why would you ban that? It's like politically completely correct. Mm-hmm. Okay, that you can understand. But the idea was like, list a few works in a random way, and the signal was don't perform anything. Mm-hmm. You know? right. So this kind of thing was easy to interpret. But the system, um, there was a there was a sort of watchdog organization that controlled everything called the Committee on Arts Affairs. And then beneath that, there were various unions, there were various uh, bureaus, uh, committees on censorship, on the theaters. And in a way, you had this sort of multi- kind of organization system where um, the controls were so strict that, you know, you'd have these organizations which sort of check on one another as well as the artists mm-hmm. that they were working with. So you could have certain work, if it was an opera, being vetted on the libretto side by one committee, musically by a union, musically by the theater, and then musically by the Committee on Arts Affairs, and even higher if needed be. If it was a work that concerned Stalin, then there'd be a special office. You know, in the Kremlin, they would look after the cult of personality. Mm-hmm. But so it was just like this endless series of checks. And at a certain point, towards the late Stalinist period, which is like the worst of all times in terms of mind control, um, you had this paralysis just creeping into the system where no one would do anything. Mm-hmm. And everything would just get bound up in an endless series of checking and rechecking and requests mm-hmm. for smaller and smaller changes. Mm-hmm. And this is the case, this is the story of War and Peace, mm-hmm. that opera, which is. Mm-hmm. You know, just in multiple versions, and by the end, Prokofiev was just haggling over two measures, mm-hmm. you know, over the, of the score and losing his mind. And mm-hmm. so the basic point was that it was never going to get performed. Mm-hmm. It just, it, the system was stuck, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, it took Stalin's death for the, you know, things not freeze. Mm-hmm. So Prokofiev falls out of favor in, in forty-eight. Is that correct? After this resolution, yeah. um, and then he attempts. And this is a very interesting story, which is what I'm leading you to. He, he attempts to rehabilitate himself by writing. 
uh, it's an opera, isn't it? Um, yeah. Called um, uh, Story of a Real Man, or I, I can't remember. Yeah, exactly. Story of a Real Man. Yeah, maybe you could tell that story. Because I found that, ve- I mean, I was, I felt his frustration. I just, uh, that was horrible. Go ahead and tell the story. It's terrible. <laughs> he, he uh, you know, for his entire career is about trying to create, you know, an opera that would succeed no matter where he was in America. Yeah. Or, I mean, in 1948, um, there's this uh, decree is, comes out which punishes a sort of minor composer for his musical sins, his ideological sins, and basically says, well, the, the reason for this is to do with the influence from the senior composers. And uh, so the whole group of elite Soviet composers, Prokofiev, Shostakovich, Miaskovsky, they were all castigated. And basically, for a time, their works were all pulled from the repertoire mm-hmm. and the commission stopped. Uh, Prokofiev was beginning work on an opera. He sensed this storm brewing, and he began work on an opera that he thought was, was the subject of subjects. It was the most contemporary thing he could find. It was the most explicit example of political correctness. And he he decided, and it was sort of a mad idea, to create an opera about a living character who, was, who had been novelized. It's the story of a mm-hmm. pilot during World War II who had crashed and lost his legs. Uh, had been amputated beneath, beneath the knee. Um, he's saved by villagers. He rehabilitates himself. He's in the hospital. This character, after this operation, he's depressed. Um, you know, suicidal. But there's an old Bolshevik next to him. The hospital sort of bucks mm-hmm. him up and says, "Look, you know, you can overcome this." And he says, "How? You know, look at me." He says, "No, you can fly again." He says, "How? Look at me." He says, well, but yeah, but you're not just an ordinary man. You're a Soviet. All right. Yeah. Exactly. So this parable is constructed about this this, this real life person who had, who had in fact gotten terribly injured and, and recovered and flew again and was turned into this ideological parable published, widely disseminated Prokofiev read it um, thought it was trash but second wife <laughs> said, you know, this might work he got some further advice and he began to compose it and he decided to compose a work that would be full of all sorts of popular ditties marches and yeah. sing-alongs and you know, great tunes. And he goes and he, po- he, he poaches his own cannon in order to bring it. He kind of yeah, he just goes cherries out of it. Yeah, right. yeah, it creates a sort of anthology <laughs> opera. <laughs> and um, and but then this this crackdown takes place, and uh, no matter what he did, he was going to get banned. And so there was this you know shambles of a performance of a run through of this thing that was put on for officials in, in Leningrad, and uh, you know everyone just stood up and said that he he was mocking. Yeah. No. And he was creating a parody, he was creating a comic book of an opera and um he just he just left the scene in very bad health at this period of time and he was just frustrated to the point of, you know, despair. He just I you know, I just don't understand. Yeah, exactly. He didn't understand why the performance was just terrible. Yeah. It didn't even sound like him. I think they just and that's really the so point. I read it, and then he just like I didn't understand. To, to me, that was the really poignant part of it. Is that you know, obviously a brilliant person. If if somebody would have set him the task of producing a a good parody of this kind of um, uh, socialist realism, I'm sure he could have done a brilliant job. Um, yeah, but, yeah. but but he does he does it by accident. He does it by almost unintentionally, and and that's how you know that the system twisted him so badly. That he could, he didn't understand what had happened. I mean, it really is a, it's an amazing. Well, and in a way, this is where he he's not, he doesn't have control over his own gift. Yeah. Because you know, it's always already with him going to have this tart yeah. edge and have yeah. this kind of wickedly humorous yeah. edge, and so he just couldn't compose a different way. Right. This is why, in certain genres, like creating a good mass chorus, he never succeeded. Mm-hmm. Whereas you know, his, his other composers did 
very well at that. It was mm-hmm. an easy thing to do. He just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> Even though he tried and tried and tried. And this yeah. this opera was a great example of a mm-hmm. work with you know a lot of chorus, kind of an oratorio. Yeah. It just it just failed. It blew up on him. And, yeah. Uh, that he he never he never recovered from it. Except he did try. He, he abandoned it, but he did start start working on another work, which is kind of going to be the Soviet version of Kosi Van Tupi. Yeah. Um, and um, he did a he did. He got through a scene, and it's actually the music's pretty good. So, but, so, um, he, so he gave up on it. Take, take us through the last years of his life. The last years of his life. This is interesting. The last years of his life. He's these are the last five years. He's in terrible health. He's he suffered this uh, you know, political crisis. Uh, commissions for the major theaters, the orchestras have all been withdrawn. He's impoverished um, temporarily, owing to the fact that this country house that he had bought on a loan suddenly became due in full, the, the loan, and uh, he had no money. Uh, this is part of one of the punishments, is the sort of, mm-hmm. the fact that he got this interest-free loan for this place. So um, he had to, in a way, he was too unwell to care about the political pressure he was facing, but a lot of his minders, handlers, the people who you know got a lot of work out of him and were able to sort of sustain themselves, um, convinced him to take on various minor projects. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, he got some work in the final years from the radio committee, mm-hmm. um, which you know performed a lot of works for broadcast and um, a lot of works for children, which is the privileged class in the Soviet sphere. Mm-hmm. And then he became. Um, this is one of the interesting stories. He he became involved with a young virtuoso cellist named Rostropovich, who was 22, mm-hmm. when they met, uh, who had taken on one of his pieces and performed it. A concerto, he performed it with a piano accompaniment at a big recital. This was a prize-winning cellist. Mm-hmm. And Rostropovich, at a certain point, was put in contact by Prokofiev. Now, that seems kind of sinister. Right? Like, why didn't they just meet and start working together and have this kind of happy mm-hmm. kind of collaboration? Well, you know, I've learned in the course of this research that not to believe in fairy tales like mm-hmm. that anymore. And somebody authorized this contact. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody decided that Prokofiev... Um, was too valuable to sort of be left to flounder, and that you know we should work with this brilliant virtuoso cellist who was representing the Soviet Soviet artistry in its greatest guise. He was allowed to travel abroad, mm-hmm. and that this, this this collaboration would work for both of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, Prokofiev at this point was not allowed to travel. Clearly, he was banned from travel. Rostropovich was already beginning to go to the West, which was like going to the moon under Stalin. Mm-hmm. So this, uh, they were put into contact, and um, I've seen letters. There are a few of them that, that, that are available, and the Rostropovich archive is basically closed because um, it's in the family's hands still. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you see Rostropovich sending letters to Prokofiev, encouraging him to write for him, mm-hmm. encouraging him to do this, that, and the other. And this collaboration starts, and the first thing that happens is the two of them rework Prokofiev's first cello concerto into a second concerto. Uh, he does a sonata for cello. He does um, a symphony concerto for cello. And at the end of his life, he's Prokofiev has reverted back to, well, gone right back to Bach. He, mm-hmm. he started working on a solo cello piece. And um, this is, at the end of his career in these collaborations with Rostropovich, Prokofiev's sort of final trip, you know, mm-hmm. is a trip back in time. It's mm-hmm. no longer in, in you know, geographical space. Mm-hmm. He reverts back to the kind of infant bliss, I guess, music. Mm-hmm associated with Bachian style. Mm-hmm. So the, his final works, unplanned um, but unrealized, were all a la Bach. Mm-hmm. You know, he left, you know, his legacy was going to conclude with, you know, a work for two piano concerto, mm-hmm. solo for a sonata for unaccompanied cello, and a contra 
So, yeah, this is actually a nice segue into my uh, my penultimate question, actually. Sure. Uh, you know, people like me who don't really follow classical music associate Prokofiev with, uh, um, uh, really, quite honestly, a, a kind of children's music. Um, yes. <laughs> but it seems to me that his legacy is actually much richer. How, is, 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 uh, how would you characterize the way in which he's remembered, and, 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 and is there any uh, attempt going on to kind of revive his more serious pieces in the American or international mind? Um. It depends where you speak. In, in the United States, um, his operas are finally uh, getting some recognition. The Metropolitan Opera is performing a lot of them. There were a couple of them in the repertoire last year. Really? The Gambler and War and Peace. Oh, really? A lot of that has to do with the fact that Valerie Gergiev is visits the Met. These are permanent uh-huh. visiting conductors. Uh-huh. He's championing these works in these chapters. <laughs> so that's taken hold. Um, you know, the original version of Romeo and Juliet and the Happy Ending. Happy right? Ending, yeah, right. She established for the Mark Morris dance group. That's on yeah. an international tour. Um, there's a lot of his unknown works that are, well, you know, lesser known works that are now getting performed owing to the activities of another conductor named Urofsky. Um But basically, I think his legacy will always be, first of all, because of Peter and the Wolf, yeah. the first composer many of us get to know, yeah. um, which is a happy thing. Um, he uh, He's among the most popular composers of the 20th century, mm-hmm. um, owing to the fact that his gift for melody is unmatched mm-hmm. in the entire history of the 20th century, mm-hmm. it's perhaps unmatched except by the composer Mozart. Mm-hmm. That gift was something that no one could touch. Mm-hmm. That gift was something that all the composers around him just shook their heads at. Even Shostakovich had to recognize that. Yes, Shostakovich was an enormously successful composer, mm-hmm. but he just bowed his head but the fact that the copy of that gift is mm-hmm. his alone, but nobody mm-hmm. else has that. Mm-hmm. So that that is the thing that characterizes his work. It's a gift for melody. It's something that's most manifest in these works, which are about the fantastic, about fairy tale landscapes, about the mindset of a child. Mm-hmm. And in a way, he his whole career was tragic because he approached the horrors of the 20th century with the mindset of a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good. And, that, and that is and yeah. that is the you know the, the tale of. Yeah, that's a that's a good way to characterize his life, actually, because he, I mean, it is a tra- he is a tragic figure. I mean, he <laughs> he gave it his best shot. I'm not he's got colloquially, but, yeah, but the, it, the question it, for the moralist among us is whether or not you know he authored his own tragedy or whether or not he just because he walked the other way, he yeah. went against the grain. He took the wrong turn on the crossroads of 20th century history. Yeah, I, 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 I guess I, I, I used to, in, in my youth, I used to blame people for that, but I've sort of, <laughs> I've given up on that kind of moralism. Oh, my, no, like you know, the kid. Yeah, it's like, I mean, he sincerely thought sitting in Paris it's either Hitler or Stalin. Yeah, right. Yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, that's a classic non-choice, isn't it? Um, so anyway, <laughs> um, it's been really a pleasure to talk to you, Simon, about this book. It's been great. And um, let me uh, ask you our final traditional question here on New Books in History, and that is, what is your next project? What are you working on now? Um, well, I'm working on another performance project uh, with a colleague of mine in Russia, which is um, some unknown Shostakovich music, uh, mm-hmm. specifically, and uh, this might be hard to believe, uh, the songs and dances that Shostakovich wrote for the secret police. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, Enka Vede, which is the precursor of the KGB, had a song and dance ensemble. <laughs> 
And uh, these works aren't performed. Uh, I don't think the Shostakovich estate is happy about disseminating them, not not perhaps with good reason. That's great. But um, the songs and dances for the Secret Police will be at some point performed. Uh, aside from that, I'm probably going to do a short, popular book on Lena's story. Yeah, that's great. Story. I would I would love to I would love to read. Yeah, I would uh, love to. Read. Uh, yeah. Working with an agent in New York about it's a great that. Great idea. Uh, aside from that, I'm I'm just doing an essay on. Well, when you when you finish the Lena book, I would love to have you back on to talk about it because she is a really fascinating character, and I'd, I, yeah. I, I would I would appreciate a few more words about her. And and I I should say that um, for anybody interested in um, Prokofiev's life or Soviet history or you know um, good writing about music and history, this is a, a terrific readable book, and 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 I hope that it finds a wide audience. Thank you very much. And certainly. Well, thank you, Simon, for being on the show. Thank you very much. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Simon Morrison about his new book, The People's Artist, Prokofiev's Soviet Years. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. Hope you have a great week. (laughs) 